and welcome to the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb and I'm flying solo today, but I'm really excited to talk to our guest, Frankie De La Creta, who is uh, one of our favorite guests on the End of Sport and also uh, such an insightful thinker and critic of popular culture and sports more broadly, especially gender issues in sport. Uh, they have written uh, extensively on issues around trans justice in the world of sport, including a very recent piece in The Nation about the world of competitive climbing, which I encourage you to check out and which we discuss briefly at the end of this interview. But the main purpose of our episode today, uh, it is Super Bowl week, and uh, I thought... This is a pretty weird Super Bowl because it's a massive pop culture event that transcends football itself more than the Super Bowl usually is because of the presence of Taylor Swift um, as uh, the romantic uh, partner of uh, Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey. And so what we try to do in this episode is really unpack all of the dynamics that go into this uh, political economic dynamics, what this does for the NFL, what this does for Taylor Swift, what this does to her various fans and for NFL fans. We try to pull apart all those political economic and gender dynamics to give you a picture of the Swifty Bowl. Please uh, follow the show on Twitter, follow the show on Blue Sky, and most importantly, subscribe to the show so that you can get all of our episodes directly. We would also love it if you would consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we don't have so many reviews up there anymore. It looks like they take off reviews periodically. We are back to recording in earnest, regularly. We have already recorded many episodes that we have not yet released. We have many more recordings scheduled. We got a lot of energy for it right now. So please uh, join us on our, um, our, our conversations with some of the most insightful thinkers about sport from a critical perspective, whether they are journalists like Frankie, whether they're athletes, whether they are academics who study sport because we have way more end of sport coming at you soon. Creda is one of our most frequent guests on the end of sport. They are a writer on sports, gender, and queerness, and co-author of Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the NFL, from Bold Type Books. Frankie's work appears everywhere, including The Nation, Sports Illustrated, The Daily Beast, Teen Vogue, and on and on. Frankie, thanks so much for coming back and joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me. You are some of my favorite people to talk to about this stuff. Oh, that is incredibly kind of you to say. Um, and honestly, you literally are the most perfect possible guest for the subject today, which is that we're going to go into some unfamiliar territory for the end of sport, the confluence between sport and pop culture more broadly. And actually, perhaps, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm just guessing perhaps the most famous person in the world right now, uh, Taylor Swift. For of course, this Sunday's Super Bowl is really the Swifty Bowl owing to her frequent place in the box of Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey. Now, I, I want to say something from the start, just in case there's 
any perception that this is like yet another attack on Taylor Swift or something like that. The purpose of this episode is not to disparage Taylor Swift. I personally am woefully out of touch with the music scene, popular or otherwise, but I like Taylor Swift's songs and I have no objection whatsoever to their popularity. But since this is be- this has become really something of a moment, and again, because Frankie has expertise in both football and Taylor Swift. I think there's no more perfect person to unpack this kind of intersection between football and popular culture with. And so that's kind of the purpose of the show today. So Frankie, to start it all off, can you just explain a little bit for our listeners in case they are unfamiliar? And and I would count myself among those who are fairly unfamiliar with just how big a deal Taylor Swift is right now in an economic and popular cultural sense. Yes. And I, I don't think it is too big of a statement to say that she is arguably the most famous person in the world right now. Um, you know, we're recording this for listeners the day after she won album of the year at the Grammys. Um, it was her fourth time winning album of the year, which uh, made history. No other artist has ever done it. And she, you know, is currently on the international leg of her Eras tour, which is the highest grossing tour of all time, and it made her a billionaire. So I think that when we talk about how big Taylor Swift is and the impact that she has on pop culture, I think it really like can't be understated. Okay, good. That's good to know. And I thought I, I, I even saw some statistics a while back. I was having trouble finding them um, as I was preparing for this, but something about like her impact on the U.S. GDP is something astronomical, right? Like the existence of her tour boosted the U.S. economy. It is. There's actually some really great articles that I love about how women sort of single-handedly saved the U.S. economy this year. And like the three um, things that they cite to back that up is Taylor Swift's Eras tour, Beyonce's Renaissance tour, and the Barbie movie. Um, like together, those three okay, entities basically single-handedly boosted the U.S. economy um, this last year. That, that's that's wild, and and it actually makes me want to ask. Like at this point, what is bigger? Taylor Swift or the Super Bowl or the NFL? Because we're going to talk about the collision between these two things. And I'm starting to get the feeling like, although from the perspective of sports fans, right, anything that's like an incursion on sports seems like an interloper and it's sort of diminished and disparaged. But I kind of get the feeling like Taylor Swift is bigger than the NFL, right? I think so. And I think the NFL knows it. Um, I mean, Roger Goodell has said like nothing and certainly no one is bigger than the NFL. But if we look at not only Taylor Swift's direct influence on like viewership numbers and attention to the league this year um, and the amount that the NFL itself has leaned into having Taylor Swift at their games, I think it's pretty clear that the NFL knows that Taylor Swift is bigger than them. Um, You know... When you look at, so I looked this up, right? I looked at some of the numbers, the broadcast numbers, the viewing numbers for the games when Taylor Swift started attending them. Um, And you can look at like viewership is up like 22% for Sunday night football games that the Chiefs are playing. Um, The audience was like up 43% over last year. 
um, for like the Chiefs week four game, uh, which was the first one that we saw Taylor Swift at and that people were expecting her to be at. And the viewership numbers like continue to just like look like that, right? Like more and more people are tuning in, but then you specifically have the viewership numbers among women fans, um, which is really interesting because I think in some ways, Women are a little bit of an untapped demographic for the NFL, like without even trying. Um, women are like nearly half of the NFL's fans. Like they're like, it's like 46% um, of NFL fans are women, something like that. And the NFL isn't even trying to appeal to them, right? And so you already have this like large number of women that watch, but you have this entirely untapped demographic of female fans. Um, and like early data um, showed that viewership among female viewers ages 12 to 17 was up 53% over the average for like Sunday night football viewing. Um, and it was similar for the older age groups of women as well. So there's a really, really smart thing happening here uh, between Taylor Swift and the NFL. And we can talk later about what I think Taylor Swift gets out of this. But in terms of what the NFL gets out of it, I think it's it's pretty obvious. Yeah, oh, that's that's beautifully framed, and, and it gets at some of the questions. So I'm going to kind of just ask to probe a little bit more on some of those things because I think you're re- really getting at some of the crucial issues here. And when we will come back around, as you say, we will definitely come back around to sort of the Taylor Swift angle, what Taylor Swift herself might be getting out of it, because I do think that's a really important part of the story. Um, but the, so the two things I want to follow up on first, um, one, maybe it's a good idea for you to just explain to us a little bit what the Tavis phenomenon <laughs> is um, and how it has kind of shaped this NFL season. You've been getting at that through the numbers so beautifully. And the other thing, because I'm so interested in what you're saying, I mean, presumably uh, the assumption would be the spike in numbers you're describing is because so-called Swifties, which is to say fans of Taylor Swift, have started watching NFL games, right? Like that's the boost in the numbers that you're talking about, presumably, unless it's not, unless it's just like cash, other people who are not necessarily fans of either. But if if we were to make an assumption that it is Swifties who are now watching, I'm kind of fascinated if you have any thoughts on why, right? Like what is the appeal? Because it's a huge leap from watching Taylor Swift engage in any kind of musical activity um, to watching a football game, which is a very technical, specific thing that looks nothing like anything that Taylor Swift normally does, aside from the fact that you might see a few shots of Taylor Swift over the course of the game. I mean, I I get it, you do. But football games are long. They're three hours long. Um, They're sometimes boring to people who love football and sports. So it's kind of amazing to me that someone who had no interest previously in football would be drawn to it to this extent because of their interest in Taylor Swift. So I, and that's a lot of stuff I know, but it was kind of inspired by what you were saying. Yeah, no, sure. And I think for people that don't know a lot about Swifties, it absolutely is like, cool. You like her pop music, but like, why are you out here now buying her boyfriend's Jersey and like making custom gear to like watch the games in, um, exactly. Right? And I'm seeing like these videos and stuff of, of, of their, of how they're decking out their Super Bowl parties. That's very impressive, but it's yeah. surprising. So I think there's something really unique about Taylor Swift in that she is kind of a genius in a marketing genius. She is. And what she has done over the course of her career is she has, cultivated this image of herself as being 
friends with her fans and this image of granting access to her life. So, you know, she talks about her music as being mostly autobiographical. Um, she gives off this impression of being really transparent and giving fans a lot of access to her life and her relationships. If we think a lot about also the media about Taylor Swift over the course of her career has been largely dominated by stories about the men she's dating, sometimes to the point that it has overshadowed, you know, her work itself and her work itself is impressive. Right. Um, And she's commented on that, that sometimes the media is much more interested in who and which which man a song might be about um, than they are in whether it's a good song. Um, And so she has done an amazing job of cultivating this level of like intimacy among her fan base, while also actually revealing pretty much nothing. I will tell you what's very funny is that for as public as her relationship with Travis Kelsey has been in that, what I mean by that is they have a lot of photo ops. They're seen in public together a lot. There's a lot of commentary from, you know, quote, inside sources about what's going on in their relationship. But like, I actually challenge somebody to tell me anything that we know about what the two have actually done together or how they actually spend any time together. I mean, for the first like several months of their relationship, she kept making appearances in cities where he was playing football and her like private jet tracker showed that she never stayed overnight ever. So it's, you know, we don't, Oh my God, are you serious? Yes. So we don't actually, (laughs) we don't actually know anything about this relationship, but we are being given the illusion that we know everything about it. Right. And so her fans are uniquely invested in her life and in her love life in particular, in a way that we don't see with a lot of other celebrities. The other piece that I think is really interesting here to bring it back to sports is, you know, something I write about in my book, Hail Mary, is I talk about football game day culture as this like cornerstone of American culture that we often call baseball America's pastime, but we don't always call like football. America's pastime, but I'd argue that football kind of is. Um, And, you know, I'm with you. Women, I'm absolutely with you. Women historically don't have access to game day culture in the same way. And so they access it in whatever way they can, whether they're cheerleading on the sidelines or, you know, I talked to one woman who played in in the league I wrote about, the women's league I wrote about. She joined the the band because it was the closest, you know, she could get to the field. And then you see the women who are fans. And so I think that football culture, game day culture has been largely inaccessible to many women. They don't really connect with it. And this actually gives them a way in to this thing that they see their dads and their boyfriends and their brothers really love. And it's a way that they can join in too. And I think we see that in, there's been like this rash of articles and we we can, I have feelings about it and we could talk more about it if you want, but about how dads can now connect with their like teen daughters over football because of Taylor Swift. And we're getting like a ton of stories about this. Right. Um, But, and and as you know, I roll my eyes at that because like, I've already told you like 46% of the NFL's fan base is already women, like women watch football. And, and I think it's really kind of sexist and dismissive to say that they only care about it now because of Taylor Swift. And at the same time, I think that Taylor Swift showing up at the games and dating somebody on an NFL team does potentially give a group of women who maybe didn't feel like this was accessible to them a way in to something that kind of Americans at large are really consumed by. 
Yeah, there's so many layers to what you just yeah. said, and uh, I am really, really intrigued by it. I was also wondering, because it's a tough question, but do you, is there a Southern element to this? And I say that why the reason why I'm confused is I know that Taylor Swift has long transcended kind of country music, mm-hmm. right, as a genre, or that kind of Southern musical. She, she's a pop star in the sense, not, not in a, again, not in a, a diminishment, but like pop star is a signifier of like superstar. Yeah. Like you're, you're not confined by a genre. You are for everyone in that sense. And obviously we know that the NFL too, football, like the project of the NFL is certainly not to confine itself as a Southern institution, right? It's marketed to every corner of the United States very consciously and beyond. And yet, if we were to look at the the most core kind of cultural demographic that fuels football today, it is still the South, right? That's where the players are coming from in the in the highest proportions. That's where kids are being enrolled at five years old. I know from my time living in North Carolina, you know, that the the heartbeat of football in the U.S. is still in the South. And Taylor Swift has this connection to the South too. Now, Kansas City is another weird space as a kind of way of mediating this and that it's kind of, you know, like a, it's on the, I don't know, it's on the border in a way, right? But um, but it has a real Southern flavor to it. I mean, it's even associated with barbecue. I don't know. Do you feel like there's a, that, that cultural element matters or is that kind of irrelevant to the story? Um. It's a good question. And, you know, something that I have actually been looking up to think about actually some of these questions is the demographics and political leanings of the NFL's fan base. And actually of all the sports leagues, the NFL is the least, um, Ooh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's the most mixed. Um, it's, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's like the yeah. purplest. I'll go with that because I, I, <laughs> I oh, fascinating. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good term. Um, yeah. And so, also Taylor Swift, and and I think this is something we're going to talk a lot more about. She has yeah. come out as a dem- as a Democrat later in her career. Right? She started in the country music yeah. space at sixteen years old, and she did really, really well in that space. And um, in 2014, she pivoted to pop. That was when she released her first like album that was like, this is the pop genre. That was 2014 that she made that switch. And hilariously, country music was like so angry about it. They like took down things that were dedicated to her. They like wouldn't say her name at like awards shows. Like, they were oh really, goodness. really upset about it because she made her career in Nashville and came up in country music as this, like, you know, America's sweetheart sort of, you know, sure. <laughs> kind of um, yes. image. And I think that country music was really offended that she would reject the genre um, in the way she did. I would argue that she outgrew it. Um, but, you know, because she debuted at 16. Um, but I do think over the course of her career, she has actually moved away from her core fan base um, existing in, in that particular space, which is not to say that they still don't, because again, she transcends like genre and she transcends politics in a lot of ways when it comes to who's actually consuming her content because she is so big. But I don't know actually how much we can chalk it up to to the Southern element and the Southern influence. Sure. No, and, yeah, no, and and it's it's 
I mean, and we will circle back to this in a more specific way, but it's, it's, it's fa- quite fascinating if you're charting your career, because you're saying we started in this kind of country music space, we would assume it to be a kind of that kind of proto MAGA space. And then she moves into the mainstream, she moves bluer in a sense. Um, and it seems like, okay, there's a, there's sort of a new um, portion of her career. And then the NFL would almost seem to be a circling back in a weird way, right? Because it's like a recapturing of that previous space because of its the the, the very traditional gender identities yes. that I think are often associated with it, right? Of course we can. Un- so I think that's a fascinating collision. And we're going to, we're specifically going to get into your writing about queerness and Taylor Swift, because to me, that's the most fascinating collision, right? Yeah. This sort of idea that she has this, because that's not something that is supposed to belong in NFL type spaces. It's right true, now. but you are actually getting at something really interesting without realizing that you are getting at it, which is that Taylor Swift has been re-recording her first six albums, right? Um, so for folks that don't know why she's doing that, um, in 2019, somebody named Scooter Braun bought the masters of Taylor Swift's first six albums. And she, you know, had hoped to purchase them and um, they were bought out from under her. And in response, she began the project of re-recording each of her first six albums. Those are known as Taylor's version. Um, And that way she will own all of her music. And um, she only has two re-records left. Um, And each album she considers to be an era. Hence the name of her eras tour, right? Each era was an album. Yeah. She has two eras left. One is, you know, reputation, which was one of her darker eras. It was a very much like growing up, coming into her own and like rejecting um, the narratives that people have put on her. But the other album that is left is her debut, her self-titled debut album. Um, We've heard people say all she has left to take back is her name and her reputation. Um, (laughs) But as she has geared up for the re-release of each album, she has done things with her public image to hearken back to that particular era of when the album came out. So she was dating Travis Kelsey when she released 1989, Taylor's version. 1989 was her first pop album. It's the one I referred to earlier when I said... 2014 is when she entered the pop genre officially. It was with the album 1989. And that album was a response to, and it's the first time we really hear her push back on the media focusing so much on her relationships with men. And so she actually sort of almost has recreated the 1989 era in this highly public relationship with Travis Kelsey. Her last relationship was a six-year-long relationship with an actor named Joe Allen, and they were never photographed in public together ever outside of like um, mm. coordinated pap walks where the paparazzi is told to show up and they're like holding hands on the beach. He never attended an awards show with her. They never gave interviews about each other. When she did speak about her relationship in interviews, she never said his name publicly ever. And so now... Travis Kelsey, the relationship is the opposite of that, right? And we can kind of see in some ways, you're like, oh, she has sort of recreated the 1989 era around the re-release of this this album. Now, to come back to what you are saying, one of the only albums that she has left to re-release is her debut album, Taylor Swift, released when she was 16 as a country album. And she was marketed to America as, right, America's sweetheart, this like white, blonde, straight, 
um, you know, mm-hmm. vision of ha- apple pie and like Americana. And in some ways I have sure. to ask, and you know, this is the kind of tinfoil hat level stuff on in some ways, but in other ways, Taylor Swift is a very calculated and, and, and a lot of what she does is not accidental. And so how much of her ingratiating herself with the NFL and its fans and showing up at the, you know, league that is very much like, again, we've talked about America's America's sport um, is an, a way to remind the public that she's still America's sweetheart or that she once was America's sweetheart and kind of recreating the image from, you know, her debut album days, um, but doing it now. And so it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting step for her, I think, from a marketing perspective, because it is so different from everything she has done prior to this. Yeah, that's and and you are getting at the that that big question that we kind of started with, which is like I get what the NFL and you made it so clear in breaking down the numbers. What does the NFL have to gain from Taylor Swift? A market potentially, right? And and that's everything. Like it's a business, and when you you have a commodity to sell, all that matters is more and more markets. That's how you produce more and more value. You have to have a bigger market. So for the NFL, it's a dream come true, whether or not they, you know, like publicly will acknowledge that fact. It's a dream come true. But it was, I was like, you know, left with this question. Well, what is Taylor Swift, who's maybe bigger than the NFL, this superstar, what's she possibly got to gain? And you've really um, walked us down the road of understanding because of her specific projects with the Taylor's version and the releases of her albums, why there's a confluence between the kind of music that she has to sell in this moment um, and the kind of cultural milieu of the NFL. And that has sort of a sweetheart thing. I mean, thing. think about her early music was all the like fairy tale football team, cheerleader, Absolutely. Romeo and Juliet romance, like a lot of that stuff that a teenager would write, right? Like, but here we are. Uh, Frank, it's kind of chilling to me. It's chilling to me because that's, so on the nose if that's the music she's selling right now for her to be on these nfl sidelines is pretty perfect right she's gearing up we know that is one of her next two re-releases has to be that and so to go back and enter this space where what is more you know americana than the white blonde pop star dating the football player right like it is no, nothing there really is nothing <laughs> absolutely yeah uh, well, so so just maybe just to say one more word on this subject, because we're, we're already talking about it. You have written a very lengthy piece uh, and a very in-depth piece about Tree Payne, <laughs> the PR mastermind who has helped shape Taylor's career since, I think, 2014. I think that that yeah. was like the, the timing, if I remember correctly. Is Is that part of this story, too, that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think the way that someone like Tree Payne comes into this story is as we're talking a lot about public image and like strategy and like, what does Taylor get out of this? I think it's important to remember that there is, you know, something and someone driving the public image of Taylor Swift. And we can argue whether her and Travis Kelsey are actually dating or whether it's, you know, a contract relationship, whether for strictly PR purposes, or as you mentioned, there's some rumors about whether or not she's queer, whether it's a bearding contract, we're never going to know that. But whether it is like real in that they're actually dating, or they've been put together for contractual reasons, it's still a PR relationship, because they are using it that way. 
right? Like we can again look to contrast her last relationship in which yeah. they were never seen in public together to the amount that these two have made sure that their relationship has been captured um by cameras, by, you know, media media members doing interviews with each of them to um the the TV cameras at the NFL games, right? Um this is not accidental and that is a marketing choice that both of their teams are making. It does not have to be as public as it is, right? And so from that perspective, it's going to be a PR relationship because they are using it as one. Um, And you always have to keep that like front and center. And I think the other thing that is interesting when we talk about Tree Payne and we talk about Taylor Swift, I have mentioned that like a lot of her fans do get to sort of like tinfoil hat level conspiracy theories about all of the moves she makes in public because she's really invited that interpretation of her work. Um, You know, she has a song off her album Midnight's, which just won the Grammy. It's called Mastermind. And there's a line about how like nothing, the whole song is about how nothing she does is accidental. And it's a nod to this belief that she is orchestrating things years in advance and Tree Payne is kind of helping, Tree Payne's job is to help do that. And so I mentioned in the article, and this is related because it talks about, again, sort of what is Taylor Swift getting out of all of this. One of my favorite theories about why Taylor Swift showed up to the Chiefs-Jets game was so that when you Googled Taylor Swift and Jets, the number one Google search was no longer about her private jet emissions which are the most among any oh celebrity. <laughs> and if if so, it's like ridiculous, but also brilliant, you know? And so is that actually right, what the right, intention yes. was? We're, we don't know and we never will, but that is the level at which many of her fans think she's operating and orchestrating the, the public image that she cultivates. Okay, okay. That, that, no, that's, that's great stuff. Um, well, a couple things. Then one... I, I do think you've made a really convincing case that regardless of what's there underneath the surface or the truth or anything else, this is a commodity spectacle of a relationship because it has been designed that way. Mm-hmm. And and I think what, what I didn't really realize going into our conversation today, you and I, was how much that contrasts with other choices she's made and why we should be reading it. Like why really we have to read it in those terms because she could easily have chosen to conceal this relationship if she'd wanted to. And so she's by putting it forward in the way you've described, you know, it, it's obviously serving a purpose, whether or not the relationship is real. So that's a great point. Yes. And I think people are quick to be like, Oh, she must really be in love. And I just, that's not how any of that works. You know what I mean? Like she changed the lyrics yeah. to her song to, to shout out Travis Kelsey on one of her tours and like the level of it is, it's like spectacle. It's almost like somebody is writing to what it feels like is if somebody was writing the rom-com version of this relationship. Um, and yeah. like, it's like that level, right? Um, even uh, we can back up a minute here and I'm going to assume that like most people have some idea of how this relationship came about at all. But like, even the fact this is hilarious to me. So the the way the public even became aware of the two of them, like in the same sentence was because Travis Kelsey talked about her on his podcast. Him and his brother have this podcast, right? And um, 
Yeah. He mentioned going to the Eras tour in Kansas City when when she was in town and making a friendship bracelet, which is was a big thing on the tour. Um, fans made friendship bracelets. And he said he made a friendship bracelet with his number on it to give to her, and he wasn't able to do so. And he talked about that on the podcast. And, you know, um, not like a month or two later, we find out that the two are actually dating. Um, and then you're like, oh, now his podcast is number one on Apple Podcasts and his jersey uh-huh. sales have gone up wow. 300%. And like, you know, there's just, it, which, you know, good for him. I mean, like, get your bag however you're going to get it. Um, but like, yeah, right. right? right. <laughs> but yes, it is an intentional choice to be as public as they are. And I think people should remember that when they look at the relationship. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Okay, well, so again, there's still a lot of stuff to, to get through, but the th- a thing that we have to unpack here, and this is something you wrote about in October for CNN, the gendered dynamics from the NFL side, right? Which is to say the way in which all of this drama has been like, you've given us now such a beautiful portrait from the Taylor Swift side in a sense. Um, and now you were just taking us through a bit of what Travis Kelsey specifically has to gain. And it's obviously an, an immense amount, but this has been perceived by football fans, right? In all of these different ways. And one of the things you wrote about in October is actually that there was like real toxicity to how the relationship had been discussed and presented in the sports media in terms of like the messaging around how to conduct a relationship, right? And and what that means in terms of questions around, you know, consent and and all this sort of thing. So I I actually, I would love to hear you speak a little bit to that for one thing. And also this constant persistent theme, which seems to be there on the, again, on the NFL side, the sports fan side, which is like this constant moaning, right? About too many shots of Taylor Swift. Like this, that basically what I'm reading it as is like, oh, you feminized our hyper-masculine space, right? That's kind of like, to me, that's the objection that I'm interpreting. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about those gendered politics. Oh my God. One of my favorite TikTok trends when all of this was starting was women, um, asking their boyfriends like who Travis Kelsey was or like talking about how um Travis Kelsey no one would know who Travis Kelsey was without Taylor Swift um they're clearly like trolling these men but the men would get so angry they're some of my favorite (laughs) videos um (laughs) but this speaks to something right and the piece I wrote for CNN oh my god let me just tell you, I wrote this piece before they'd ever confirmed their relationship. So from Taylor Swift's side, her team had not confirmed at all that they were involved and she hadn't been, you know, shown up to any games or anything. And I, it was like, I wrote it, I filed it on like a Friday. And that Sunday was a game that she showed up to for the first time. And then the piece ran on Monday and we edited it to make sure like, because what I was talking about was relevant. Um, But it unfortunately opened me up to men being really angry at me because um, yeah, because she had confirmed the relationship like the day before the piece ran. And so everyone was like telling, you know, it it made me look like a little bit um, delusional, but um, like my point stood regardless, which was that before Taylor Swift or her team had yeah. confirmed her relationship with Travis Kelsey, from the minute Travis Kelsey went on that podcast and said, I wanted to give Taylor Swift my number, 
the way that sports mm-hmm. media and particularly men in sports media spoke about Taylor Swift was kind of repulsive. And it went from people wildly speculating about the fact that they were definitely dating and saying weird, like sexual things about Taylor Swift um, to yeah. like calling her like a, a six like or a seven and like you know these ratings about how attractive she was um and like comments about you know like whether or not she was going to perform oral sex on travis kelp and it was just it was insane it was you know sorry i don't like to use that word but it was wild how how much this non-issue dominated sports media and you heard nothing from taylor swift's side and to me all i could think about was these like gross locker room dynamics in which men are like egging each other on to pursue a woman who has expressed absolutely no interest in them and that like what the woman had to say was not being taken into account at all and like watching these men whip up this narrative in which like Travis Kelsey should be pursuing someone who, as far as we knew, had never even looked his way, um, was, I think, really deeply tied to toxic masculinity and, like, consent culture and entitlement that a lot of men have to women's opinions or women's attention. Um, And it just, like, left a really bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, that, that's very well put. And there's really almost nothing more that really needs to be added to that because I think you've, you've, you've underlined it perfectly. But it, 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 this is kind of continued throughout the season, right? Like, cause, because I, I just feel like I keep, it keeps crossing my radar, like the constant, com- even when people making fun of the people who are making these complaints, but like there's just a constant re- sort of recycling of this discourse around how many shots of her there are during yeah. the game. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's bizarre. And I actually think that people have parried it in very effective ways because it's like, would you rather see the decrepit owner of the team, like, so it's quote unquote, owner of the team, right? So is that the person that we really want to see on the sideline? Or would you rather see Taylor Swift? Like, I think for the average person, if you don't code it through this kind of toxic masculinity you're describing, right? It's like pretty obvious why, just from a interest standpoint from an objective observer like yeah this superstar is at the game she apparently has a like even if we were to accept the premise she has a romantic relationship with a member of one of the teams like that's an entertaining story it is but oh my god can you i just like i'm thinking about like how uh convenient it is for the nfl that this like white blonde pop star is dating this like white man in a predominantly black league like we have simone biles over here dating green bay packers player and we're not making simone biles and jonathan owens which we're not going to get into here because oh my god the the comments he's made publicly at least at least travis kelsey clearly respects you know his his partner but you do have this like the best arguably one of the best athletes and the best gymnasts and like one of the most decorated olympians of all time in simone biles over here married to one of your players and that is not the relationship that they are making the face of this league no it is not the black couple it is the white couple and i think that that is very convenient for the nfl yeah oh yeah great point great point i mean again i think that 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 speaks for itself um all right there's a few different things I still want to explore here. So I'm just trying to think of what to go with next. And um, maybe 
because I think it's connected to what we're saying. Because uh, we're again, we're going to come into the the, the the queer politics thing is one of the fi- parts I find most interesting. Um, but before we go there, what is happening with this whole MAGA Donald Trump holy war against <laughs> Taylor Swift, which is now apparently <laughs> taking place? And and I think like you can see by the way, like the foundation for that's already there and what you've just been describing, right? With this sort of toxic masculinity piece, like there's been a thing that is burbling among a particular constituency in this sort of NFL world that is obviously they've got their hackles up. They feel like there's been an invasion of their sacred macho man space, um, and. I, it, I mean, am I wrong to think Donald Trump is like, because he's good at that. Like, he has some real skills. He's a monster, mm-hmm. but he's also like really intuitive when it comes to certain primal desires among people he's trying to connect with. And it's like Donald Trump, he sees that happening and he's jumping right on that bandwagon. Yeah. And I mean, Donald Trump and Taylor Swift have history, right? Like, Taylor Swift came out as a Democrat in um, 20. 20- 18. Um, and it was the first right, time right. she really made a statement about politics. And it was, you know, really in response to Donald Trump in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's a scene in her documentary, Miss Americana, where she's sitting on the couch with Tree, her Tree Payne, her publicist, who we've already spoken about, and getting ready to publicly endorse Democrats. And, you know, Tree is like, here, my job is to prepare you for what could happen here. And the president could come after you. Like, I need you to know that. And Taylor Swift is like, let him, you know? Um, And so Donald Trump, I think, um, has disliked Taylor Swift since that moment. But this conspiracy theory is connected to that, right? Um, The conspiracy theory, for people who do not know, is that Taylor Swift is like a Democratic operative. And the relationship between... Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey is like a psyop staged by Democrats to give Biden a boost in his reelection bid. Connected to this, of course, is that Travis Kelsey like um, endorsed COVID vaccines. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was reading about that last night. Yeah, yeah. So together, they're this you know progressive couple that's here to take down Donald Trump. um, I guess, and um, you know, a lot of this stems from an NFL player like last year making a joke that the NFL was scripted and that has become their like calling card which is like um you know someone uh, a right-wing like news pundit was like tweeted I wonder who's gonna win the Super Bowl and I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially culturally propped up couple this fall right implying that this is all like this big democratic psyop Yeah, no, it's, it's, I can't help but feel once again, we have one of these situations where it's like the right manages to successfully highlight some real, um, problematic political economic dynamics, you know, like in this case, it's like the way in which a lot of money is being made out of something that seems to be artificial in various ways. Right. And so much like I I always felt with respect to COVID, right. There was this, this discomfort with pharmaceutical companies. It's like, well, yes, the, the pharmaceutical industrial complex is an evil industry that is exploiting people's health and well-being to make an immense amount of money. Um, That's obviously a very real problem. And in fact, we have vaccine apartheid in the world because they won't make this publicly funded vaccine available because they're trying to hoard 
capital, right? So there's like a lot of reasons to be upset about the pharmaceutical industrial complex, but like the problem is not that the vaccines are fake. That's not the thing. So you got it wrong, but like you were right about a lot of the dynamics. And that's why your conspiracy theory is very effective, right? And like, and speaks and connects to people that may not be super well informed on the subject. And it's almost like we're getting at the same kind of thing here, right? Like people are picking up on a lot of artifice and a lot of capital that is circulating in the context of Taylor Swift and the NFL. But like, this is a bit of an implausible explanation. It is. But like, oh my gosh, look, like if you think about what we have talked about over the course of this episode, the gossip blogs are talking about Taylor and Travis. Feminist websites are talking about why men are being sexist and like Taylor Swift isn't ruining football. Right-wing media is consumed with the idea that she is, you know, a democratic operative. And guess what? Nobody is talking about the massive Washington Post what? investigation about the concussion crisis that dropped this week. Ah, uh, well said. Well said. <laughs> like yeah. the distraction. No, no, that's a great point. The distraction yes. from what's actually happening in the NFL, right? The NFL, this has been a dream season for the NFL. They their numbers are like skyrocketing everyone is talking about this like you know couple this picture perfect couple and the the biggest pop star in the world is at their games and it has been such a brilliant pr move to really lean into that because what it has done is you know think about what was happening around the super bowl the last couple years people are talking about why they're boycotting nfl football People are talking about why they're not going to watch the sport anymore or this league anymore, whether it's because of Colin Kaepernick and, you know, racial justice issues, whether it's because of the CTE crisis, which the two are, you know, linked, as I know, you know, but there are plenty of reasons why people have been boycotting this league. And if we look at what the press looks like leading up to this Super Bowl, even on the heels of this massive Washington Post investigation dropping, none of that is in is in play. We're talking about what Taylor Swift is going to wear. My goodness. Or whether yeah. she's wow, whether she's working with the Biden campaign, right? No, it's been completely whitewashed in the sense that I mean, I use that specifically because of the, what you were pointing out about the racial dynamics of this spectacle as well and what that's meant. Because that, that helps wipe away any conversation about Colin Kaepernick as, as you're connecting those dots, too. So uh, I, I find that really compelling. Um Okay, so now let's get to the thing, which I keep gesturing to, and you've spoken just a little bit about, but let's talk more about it. Because there has been, in the world of Taylor Swift popular cult, this is like, I think, very tangential to what, like, NFL fans are experiencing. I think most NFL fans are not going to be that cognizant of these dynamics. But for a lot of Swifties, one of the key issues of late has been this question of to what extent um, is queerness a part of Taylor Swift's identity project, et cetera. Um, and you have, so first of all, there was a, there was a major New York times story on the subject. And it was so interesting. I, even though I don't follow Taylor Swift closely, I read that story, um, because partly because I saw you, you kind of like tweeting about it or whatever. And I was really intrigued. So I did read that. And I see, and then I saw you have also written about it in extra. Um, so can you walk us through why this question is so central to understanding Taylor Swift and what she represents in this moment and the argument that you make about um, why it's essentially like homophobic to reject the possibility of reading Taylor Swift in this queer way. 
Sure. And also, uh, last summer, I went to a weekend-long camp for Gaylers, which is what queer Taylor Swift fans are called, and wrote about it for Cosmo. So I, like, spent a weekend with this community as well and really, you know... Oh, my immersed, God, that's part of this. That's obviously part of the story. So please, really yes, yes, we need to myself, hear about that. Really immersed myself in it. Um, and I think... Um, so Gaylorism, which is the, this, and Gaylorism is a spectrum, right? Kind of like any, um, theory is a spectrum. Um, on one end of the spectrum, you have people who, uh, provide, uh, queer interpretations of her art and public image, which, you know, people, and you take any (laughs) English class in any major university and you're going to be doing something similar, right? That's something that we've done. Absolutely. People have always done. The extreme end of Gaylorism is the idea that not only is Taylor Swift queer and closeted, but that she has all of these muses and these secret relationships um, and everything that she does basically is coded um, to keep her closeted and is sending these very explicit hidden messages to her queer fans. And again, as we've talked about with Taylor Swift, she has encouraged a lot of this in her fandom in that she's explicitly given comment about how she plants Easter eggs, uh, hidden messages in both her music and her videos and even in her clothing. And she explicitly tells people to look to her clothes and like her music videos and uh, the visuals on her tour for Easter eggs. So she's inviting this this kind of theorizing and this kind of deep reading of her work and i think that's really important to say yeah. because i think that no i find that really compelling too as I, honestly as someone who's not follow no, not paid that much close attention um in reading that new york times piece in your own work i, I find that to be really convincing. it's important a person is constantly right yeah. especially because people are so quick to call fans who think she's queer delusional and calling queer people delusional or crazy is is a homophobic trope that is deeply rooted in the history of you know homo- homosexuality being seen as a mental illness and being criminalized and so it's really really i think important for me to say that there is encouragement from the artist directly because i hate that That's a lot right. of these people are painted as delusional um and so i think What's really beautiful about Gaylorism is that whether or not Taylor Swift is queer, she is making art about very objectively queer themes, which is like longing and like secret relationships and a love that could destroy your reputation, right? Like these are all very, very queer coded things, whether or not she's singing them about, you know, a queer relationship. And so it makes sense that queer people are going to, you know, see themselves in this work. And I think it's a testament to what a good artist and songwriter Taylor Swift is. Um, I have a lot of issues with the fact that Taylor Swift has not come out and said she's straight. She's never said those words. She's never said, um, and and maybe she's not straight. I don't need her to come out. Um, But if she is straight, plenty of artists have shown us how to say, I am not straight, but I, you know, am so glad that so many people can connect with my music and I love my queer fans. Um, and if she's not 
straight. I don't need her to come out, but I do wish she would stand up for her queer fans who have really, really taken a mm-hmm. beating um, online in in ways that um, is deeply upsetting, I think. But um, yeah, and to connect those potential queer politics, though, to what we we're talking about of this image and when Gaylorism, which used to be very niche, it came up on Tumblr, right? And a lot of people did not know about these theories for a very long time. Yeah. And now they are being written about in the New York times. And I don't think it's a coincidence yeah. that we now see her in this high profile relationship with a man who plays football. It's like the straightest, <laughs> the straightest thing yeah, she yeah, could have yeah. done. <laughs> well, that's yeah. And there's a couple things like one. So it sounds like you're saying that there's a major backlash among like sort of a heteronormative hegemonic contingent of Swifties against these kind of queer reading. Is that right? Because it's it's threatening those people are furious, furious. And I think it's been fascinating to watch the response to that New York times piece, which I can, it was an opinion piece. And I will say there are a few places Mm -hmm. where that writer speculated, um, maybe more than, was advisable. I'd say the ending in particular, where she cites a specific song being sung on stage as like a coming out of sorts. But the majority of that article really was cited to the hilt and, you know, backed up with evidence and was only quoting like the artist's own work and was intentionally what I'll call museless. It didn't speculate on who any of those songs might have been about or which people Taylor Swift might have had relationships with. Um, And the response to that article, even from like other journalists, really was people called it disgusting and like invasive. And um, I, I find the idea that people could be so offended by the mere suggestion that there might be queer themes in Taylor Swift's work to be deeply homophobic because the, because you only get offended by the idea that somebody could be queer. If you think being queer is negative, we don't get up. Like we speculate about celebrity sexuality. Every time we wonder if a woman is dating her male co-star that she was photographed with at lunch, that is speculating about her sexuality. We do it all the time. The only time we see that critiqued is when the speculation is about queerness. And again, it's only offensive if you think being queer is offensive because actually applying a queer reading and a queer lens to an artist's work is morally neutral. Exactly. No, that's, that's perfectly said. Uh, I, I think that's exactly correct. So it seems to me then like I'm listening to you explain all this and, and also the history with Gaylorism is, well, there's two ways. There's the question of perception and the question of reality, but like, is this Tavis turn a betrayal of those queer fan to those queer fans who have been given all of these Easter eggs, as you say, and all of these, like all of these signifiers that, un- I mean, I find it almost preposterous to suggest like that, that Taylor Swift or people with part of her, you know, her, um, well, no, I think well, I have no reason not to say that Taylor Swift herself would not be responsible for that. So like the Taylor Swift wanted to engender some kind of, you know, identification 
with her queer fans. She's done the work to make that happen. I think that's really convincing. So then in making this shift to the Tavis relationship, and, and, and the point is not the relationship she's having, because as we've been saying over and over again, it's not, we're no, no one's, we're no, there should be no demand on anyone to have any kind of relationship, right? It's her choice to live the life that she wants to live. But the spectacularization of it, that's what we've been talking about here. Um, that's what's deliberate. That's what's conscious. Is that a betrayal? Yeah, I think it would depend on which queer fans you asked. I think there are queer fans that really, really feel shattered by it and had hoped that Taylor was moving, you know, after the heiress tour towards potentially a public coming out. I'll also say bisexual people exist. Who knows? She could, you know, she, she could be bisexual. Yes. You know, that's what I was, like, no, that's what I was thinking. We, we can't push her into a particular right. type of relation. That's, that's not what matters. Right. Yeah. But I do think there is a large swath of queer fans who and I'd say actually the Gaylers are much more in tune with the uh, public image and the manipulation of a public image than maybe the like mainstream Swifties are. I think they have to be. Yeah, I think that's convincing. I think they're much more aware of the mechanisms behind the scenes um, and how much smoke and mirrors are really involved. Um, and so for those Gaylers, I think they are maybe like the disappointed but not surprised variety you know um and i i think they understand this in some way as like a larger pr move towards a goal that may not be clear yet you know we may not know where where this is going Mm -hmm. or where where taylor swift is is headed but um yeah i think they have they understand it in that context yeah, no, that's really nice nuance, actually. I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's let's finish then maybe with a completely different topic, but I, I think it's worth touching on the fact that you just published um, on February 2nd uh, an investigative report about the world of competitive climbing and how it has been, as you characterize it, rocked by transphobia. So would you like to, would you, this is a piece that you published in The Nation and uh, we'll, I'll link to it as well because I think people should check it out. But do you want to just kind of quickly describe for listeners um, what the story was there, what, you, what your findings were? Sure. So in November, I became aware of this group called Trans Climbers Belong and they um, were putting out content on social media that was criticizing a new trans participation policy that had been put in place by USA Climbing. Um, USA Climbing is the national governing body um, for competitive climbing in the United States. Um, and I wasn't surprised to see that um, anyone who's been following the world of elite sports will know that a lot of governing bodies are putting new and highly restrictive policies about whether trans athletes can compete. Those are, you know, being passed across sports, cycling, swimming, track and field, disc golf, you name it, right? Um, We're seeing these pop up all over the place. However, um, after speaking to folks at that organization, what I found out was that this policy was a complete surprise to the climbing community, including USA Climbing's own DEI committee. 
um, that the policy had been passed with like no trans voices involved, no warning that it was coming. It was like buried in the bottom of a mass email that was sent on a Wednesday in the middle of a season. Um, wow. And it was so restrictive that it would have impacted climbers as young as 12. It would have basically prohibited like 13 year olds from participating in sports if they weren't on um, hormone, hormone therapy, if they were transgender and not on gender affirming hormone therapy, which, you know, on its own is ethically gross. But then from a practical standpoint, like nearly half of states have banned gender affirming care for minors. So like, there's just, there was a lot going on there. And, um, so I started looking into what was important to me, uh, was how this had happened, like from a process point of view, what had gone wrong, because mm-hmm. after it was passed, the um, the trans athlete who had been the chair of the DEI committee and um, had been involved and had knowledge of this policy resigned in protest, and it was very clear that USA Climbing was going to use this trans athlete to pin all of this on, to pin on a policy that had harmed his community, um, and yep. I really wanted to look at that. And so... I, yeah, I published this story and that basically showed how, um, the leadership at USA Climbing, um, really has thrown trans athletes under the bus by blaming a trans girl for the reason that they publish or, you know, pass this policy in the first place to pinning it all on the one tokenized trans person that they asked to help. Um, and the other piece of the story though, that I think is really heartening is that the climbing community was so infuriated and showed up in such solidarity with trans athletes. They had over like 11,000 signatures on this petition and Jim, Jim started boycotting USA climbing sanctioned events. It was so bad that they had to pause the policy less than two months after announcing it um and they are now having to completely write a new one um i don't know what that will look like (laughs) i don't i don't know Uh, you know i i'm i am never optimistic about these things but i am hopeful that at the very least um the solidarity that uh trans athletes saw from their sport can be um something that other sports um can take with them too totally no that, that's that's actually a really important point because what is totally unexceptional about this story is the, like the virulent transphobia that has swept sports across north america right and has just been weaponized in all of these different contexts to exclude trans athletes from participation in sport um and we're, we're seeing it absolutely everywhere. We're seeing legislation in Canada, too, to this effect, just in Alberta. Alberta once has now passed incredibly um, just um, callous and uh, unnecessary uh, anti-trans inclusion legislation. And it includes sports, right? Sports is always in there because they like to use the sports piece as this sort of fake common sense kind of aspect to, to bring like average people on side. Um, and it's, it's disgusting on many levels because it's all part of a larger transphobic project to, to 
wipe trans people out of existence in general and eliminate all rights. Um, and also specifically, it harms those who want and need to participate in sport. So I'm not surprised that like, it's like, yeah, climbing, just like everywhere else, we're seeing the same thing play out. But it's amazing to hear that there has been that kind of solidarity, like that is yeah. beyond heartening yeah, because we don't is. see that everywhere. It is. And I will say what was interesting to me about reporting this story is, you know, Mark Norman, who's the president and CEO of USA Climbing, has really publicly had this um, characterization of the policy, right? They're centering fairness um, with inclusion. And, Mm -hmm. you know, their policy was stricter than the International Federation that governs their sport. And when asked about that, he said, um, he told Climbing Magazine, he wouldn't speak to me, but he told Climbing Magazine that he expected the International Federation to have a comparable policy soon. So I asked the International Federation and they were like, no, we have no plans to update this policy. And, you know... You can look at the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency who flat out told me, no, this we didn't see this policy before it was passed. No one from this organization even asked us if this was in line with how we conduct you know, testing for, for different drugs and hormones. And so all of these things that, to try to cover up institutional you know, error, um, the end result yeah. of those things is even... They're building a huge national training center in in Utah, and when a bunch of gyms announced that they wanted to boycott because of the position this trans athlete policy was putting them in, he tried to announce this national training center to the gyms to like incentivize them to trust and continue to be engaged with USA Climbing, and it backfired spectacularly. Not only was the National Training Center going to potentially take revenue away from the gyms who were hosting the the events, <laughs> but he pat like Utah is a state with some of the worst anti-trans legislation in the country in like five different directions, yep. just underscoring how little, like, can you imagine being like, I know that you are all upset at the way we're treating trans athletes, but look at this new training center we're building in one of the states that's worst for trans athletes. Just preposterous <laughs> to me. It really is. It really is. Uh, well, incredible work on that story. And thank you so much for sharing it. Thank I you. guess there's only one question left then for this, for this uh, conversation. Are you going to watch the Super Bowl? Oh my God. Yes, I am because my partner really loves it. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, totally get it. I hear you. Yes, I know. And it used to be like, I, I, I always used to watch the Super Bowl, but I, I haven't watched it in recent years. I, I will say that the, the Swifty angle makes it more compelling to me, not less, for sure. Like, I mean, just from just to, to play off one more time that theme of how successful this has been for both Taylor Swift and the NFL in terms of concealing everything else it's it's true i see the seduction it's like obviously i care about the concussion piece like i'm not watching football in general you know like and, and i've been clear about that i'm not watching football in general anymore um the colin kaepernick angle is an extremely compelling one um in that they have blackballed someone who was pursuing racial justice right so with all that in mind but it's you know crazy that I would, or, that's the wrong word but yeah yeah no exactly it's it, wild that i would even consider it but i'm but i'm tempted but i know will taylor swift run onto the field and kiss him in public again if the chiefs win who knows watch to find out <laughs> exactly exactly well frankie thanks so much for joining me thank you so much for having me 